pray and we're going to jump right in. Uh, Abba Father, please give wisdom and grace right now. Please uh, open up our eyes to truth, our ears to truth, our hearts, uh, what it means to believe and to live out our convictions. Uh, Lord, I know this is this chapter is of critical importance. And I ask that you just really, really stir everybody up right now, please. And thank you for what you've done in my heart. Lord, I love you, and I thank you for the way you love this church. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay. Just a quick comment. Um, you know, I believe with all my heart in uh, the authority of John six sixty three which says that the flesh profits nothing. It's the spirit that gives life. Jesus said, the words that I have spoken to you, they're spirit and they're truth, they're life. Uh, this book is not like any other book on planet Earth. Sure, it's a collection of religious writings, sure. There are hundreds and hundreds of various religious groups with their sacred writings, but ours is different. And I don't put, I don't put the Holy Scriptures on the level of the Quran. I don't put it on the level of the Bhagavad Gita's and the writing of the Hindus. Uh, I don't put it on the level of the writings of philosophers and Nietzsche and, and scores of other people. There's something very, very different about the scriptures. If you doubt me, I have a challenge for you. I challenge for you to take a piece of paper and write out the most influential women and men in history and do a fair and just comparison of those people against the Lord Jesus Christ. And you tell me if those people, those men and those women, come up with a better philosophy, a better system of ethics than Jesus Christ. And if they do, follow it. I dare you to do that. I dare you to do that. With everything your cortex can handle, I dare you to do that. Yes, this is alive. It's like a sword. It's like a sharp sword. If you can come up with a better ethical system, follow it. If you can come up with an ethical system that can fully flesh out the realities of mercy and yet make everybody responsible, go for it. If you can beat that one, go ahead. There is something different about Jesus of Nazareth. Very, very different. The impact that Jesus Christ had on Paul is immeasurable. So let's get into the background. We're at Rome. There are probably at least a dozen to two dozen churches, maybe more, in this massive city, the epicenter of the Roman Empire. Many of these churches are tiny. In fact, um, this little cluster of people right here would be a freestanding church. Another little group right here. So there would be potentially five or six churches represented right now. Just here, we've got a lot of folks out on vacation right now. We were packed out last Sunday. They didn't have big buildings. Most of these meetings could be as few as a half dozen people to maybe 30, depending on whether it was a home or these poor tenement little apartment buildings, the insula. Okay? So they're small groups of people. There's tremendous pressure. Uh, you might not be aware that uh, decades earlier, the emperor of Rome started a cult, a new cult called emperor worship. 
known as the imperial cult. Can you imagine if you were at the mall, the outlets of Little Rock, Park Plaza, somewhere in an open area, and there was a shrine dedicated to Donald Trump? And you were, some of you are already <laughs> shaking your heads, and you were required by law to stop and worship and pay tribute at the shrine of Donald Trump. Would it help if I said Barack Obama? Would that make it better? <laughs> the emperor, regardless, Nero, Caligula, Marcus Aurelius, the greatest emperor of all, the greatest leader of all of Rome, brought Rome really to, to its zenith. And you had to stop and worship. And if you didn't, you acted like an atheist. And if you act like an atheist, you bring the wrath of the gods down in the city. So if there's trouble in Rome, it's your fault, you atheist. How's that for political pressure? How's that for tension? So this is what's going on. Uh, you think we have moral struggles in America? Oh, ratchet it way up if you're in Rome. Public nudity. Something to be proud of, to be bold. The consumption of wine, drunkenness, drugs, abortion. Abortion, abort-efficient drugs, very effective. It's all there. Everything's going on. All kinds of deviant sexual behaviors. It's all in Rome. Okay, it's all there. Violence like America knows nothing about. Cruelty, it's not even on our radar. The violence that was carried out in Rome. Now imagine that you're a Christian and you're living there. And you believe you're going to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's what you can, you're going to believe, all right? Now, there's tremendous pressure for you to deal with social issues, external, and then social issues internal, inside the church. And that's what this is about. This is what Romans 14 is about. The title is extremely important. I want you to get this. Romans 14 is going to deal with the corporate conscience of the body of Christ. So here's my first little teaching point to get you ready for this. Our conscience as Christian is a corporate reality. Now remember, we are heavily psychologized modern Western Americans. We're American. And we like American made, man. I'm American, right? And I need no one. I am my own man, and I don't need you. And my world is a private world, and what is private in my world is none of your business. I'm American, <laughs> okay? Flip it around. I'm Mediterranean. All right, we're flipping it. We're going first century. There's no such thing as a private world. Your privacy is gone. There's a corporate world. That is called dyadism. The dyadic personality is the collective conscience. We are us. Monadism is America. I am me, and I don't need you. You are you, and let's keep the boundaries clear. Dyadism is the collective soul. We define each other. So when you look into the mirror, you don't see yourself. You see your kin group, your people group. Making sense? Okay. So if, if, I, if, if the foot is in pain, then the hand feels the pain of the foot because they're connected. The parts of the body of Christ are connected. We make up a collective conscience. Making sense? Let's define conscience. What is a conscience? You ready? We're going to have to grab a hold of these words if we're going to get Romans 14. 
For some people that I know, Christians, and some of you here this morning whom I know, you have the hardest time making a distinction between the Holy Spirit and your emotions. Between the Holy Spirit and your conscience. And I want you to know something. Your conscience is not the Holy Spirit. Soak it up. Cooper, your conscience is not the Holy Spirit. John Page, your emotions are not the Holy Spirit. They're not. Nor are they in me. Take your finger and point to the Holy Spirit inside of you. Where are you going to point? Here? Where? Chet, where does, where does he live? Do you know? <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's, just, it's kind of ugly inside me, right? Where, where do you manufacture your emotions? Where? It's awfully hard for the wisest of us to distinguish between an emotion and the move of God. Be real careful, okay? Your conscience is not the Holy Spirit. In fact, your conscience, bear with me because we're here to learn. This isn't fourth grade stuff. Your conscience is a function of your mind, just like my bicep has a function, right? Your conscience is a function of your mind. It's the, it's the place in your mind where you do assessment of morality and where you make decisions that this is good behavior and this is bad behavior. Do it, Brian, do you run, you know, is it red means stop, green means go, and yellow means hurry up. Hurry up. So that's, a, that's a decision of the conscience, right? And you hope Brian's not behind you when you hurry up. Your conscience is a function of your mind. It's your ability to assess moral issues and make decisions about it. Okay? All right? Now, when it comes to matters of conscience, let me give you two more words. Words, by the way, if you're at CC, any time at all, you know these vocab words. They're, the word is essential. The next word is non-essential. Okay? In, in Greek, right out of the Greek New Testament, diaphara, that which matters. Through that which matters. Things that are essential. Okay? When it's adiaphoric, it's non-essential. It doesn't matter. So, do you guys realize that there are people who will split of whether or not this, this, this chair should be blue or light brown or possibly beige? Churches can split over this. It sounds silly, right? Does the keyboard go on the left side or the right side of the stage? Which one is it? And there, there are churches getting in profound battles over things that are adiaphora, non-essential, they don't matter, and, oh, my goodness, just ripping the church apart. Makes sense? You getting the idea here? I want you to get, get the background. That in mind, let's, let's read this together. I'll, I'll read it, and you please put on first century ears and listen closely. <clears throat> now, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand 
for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced. Ooh, that's a big deal. To be fully convinced in your own mind about these matters. Now, so far, here's your pop quiz. You ready? Are we talking about things that are diaphoric or adiaphoric so far? We're talking about food. In verse 21, he's going to pick up wine. Wine, calendar days, holy days, and diet. Are we talking about things that are diaphora or adiaphora? Essential or non-essential? Non-essential. So far, this is non-essential. Okay. And so these Christians, uh, Carla in Rome, are torn apart over what is not essential. That would be like saying the color of the chairs and the color of this carpet, and we've got a problem. Okay. Who are the weak and who are the strong? Real quick, the weak, in all likelihood, the weak are people who are Jewish Christians that converted to Jesus Christ, faith in Christ, and still hold on to the Mosaic law. Okay? And they believe that you've got to submit to kosher regulations. And if you don't, you're violating uh, rules from God and God's going to punish you for it. But it's more than that. You know why? Where's Libby? Where's Libby? Libby's here. The word vegetable, Libby is an external nutrition. This is the Greek word literally means green leafy vegetables, is what it means. Not vegetables in general, but it's a vegetarian concept that is so strict. It's as though you could say that the weak people eat only lettuce. That's a pretty close translation. That the spiritually weak, the weak in faith, only eat lettuce. Okay, green leafy things. But the strong can eat anything. So who are the strong? They're most likely Gentiles who converted to Christ and who get the gospel, that the gospel frees you from the Mosaic law. So they can eat everything. Does that mean ding-dongs? Would the Apostle Paul eat a ding-dong? This is important stuff. We've got to be fully convinced in our own mind that he would eat ice cream uh, or drink Diet Coke or something like that. So the Jewish Christians are saying, uh-uh, no. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. And the weak and the stronger saying, sure we can. But it's a little deeper than that because these, pay attention. Please hear me, please. Oh my gosh. These weak people are so weak. But Paul uses a word to talk about they're being strict in an unreasonable way. You know anybody like that? They have such internal control. Uh, excuse me. They have such internal chaos they go for external rules that are so strict it's impossible to live by their own rules that we people have to live on lettuce that's the only way to be right with God to eat lettuce only we're talking about levels of rules and regulation and strictness that are just unreasonable make sense internal chaos Grab an external rule to make sense out of life. Sometimes those people are just impossible to live with. They're hard to live with. And then you've got these arrogant, free-spirited, strong. It don't matter. Do what you want. It's a pot roast. Eat it. But it was sacrificed at one of the local temple cults. So? What do you mean, so? Can you imagine Kroger attached to First Church Authoritarian? Think of Kroger attached to First Church Authoritarian. 
and you know that at the local service, or that morning worship service at First Church Authoritarian, they sacrificed some animals. And the professional butchers in the back processed the meat and then offered it up at the local Croker meat annex building attached to the cult. And when you go there to shop, because that's the only place to buy it, you are literally participating in the eating of a meat that was sacrificed to a local pagan <clears throat> god. An idol. And the, and the strong say, so? Who cares? Just eat it. It's just meat. just protein. Just eat it. No big deal. And the weaker, oh, you can't do that. You can't do that. So this is the background. You get it? All right. Now then. Look at verse 6. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord. Libby, can you imagine if we all ate for the Lord? Wow. It would change things, wouldn't it? Okay. Because he gives thanks. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself and not one of us dies for himself. For we live, for if we live, we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. How's that guy for a sold out life? <laughs> no matter if you live or die, it doesn't matter. It's going to be for the Lord. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Look at this. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow before me, every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Now, I know, let's get ready for your pop quiz question. I know and am convinced that in the Lord, in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Is Paul siding Brian with the weak or the strong? With the weak, anybody else? In a way, you're right. In, it, there you are, you're a police officer. He is protecting the weak. But in terms of Paul's independent position, strong or weak? In a way, both. But he's actually siding with the strong. He says, hey, I've settled this. I'm fully convinced in my mind that there's nothing unclean. It's just a pot roast. That's all it is. But, he sides now with weak, Brian, but the one who thinks it's unclean because of their immaturity or their lack of faith or whatever the issues are, to him it really is unclean. It really is. So a principle forms. How do you deal with people that are so weak that they have all this trouble with guilt and their conscience is all twisted and knotted up and they don't know how to handle this moral ethical dilemma over wine, diet regulations, pot roast offered at the local temple, uh, food regulations. What do you do? Paul says in 15, for if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Remember, love does no wrong to a neighbor Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. 
Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing, your freedom to eat what you want, to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue. Uh, Matt, the word pursue is to passionately chase down. I mean, this, this is an almost athletic imagery. You're doing what it, what it takes to chase this thing or this person down. Therefore, we pursue, like athletes, the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. So do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything for which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. Wow. Lots of principles. So, here's the summary. Uh, if you... Um, if you've got some notepad, notepaper ready, I, I want to encourage you to, to take some notes here. Verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak. Let me pop back for you here. Accept the one who is weak. You need to know that the word acceptance is of critical importance because, Chris, it's a word that involves really the, the dinner table. Okay. The idea is this. I'm not sure if you've had this experience. Probably have. But when you start disagreeing with somebody about whether you're going to see a PG-13 movie or whether you are free in Christ to see an R-rated movie, right? or you can say certain words, uh, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, or you can't say certain words, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and that can't be a part of your vocab. And tension forms. What do we naturally do as Americans? What do you do? You separate. And you polarize. It's, it's almost intuitive in our emotional gut that when someone disagrees with you or brings out something inside of you you don't like, then you avoid. You detach and avoid. Am I making sense? You with me? You know, you've lived it out, right? <laughs> We've all been shunned. Or we have done the shunning, the detention. All right. The minute someone disagrees with you or you disagree with them, all of a sudden the relationship becomes so fragile that the only thing you can do is separate. This word accept is the opposite of that. It's the very opposite. It means, it means I'm going to take you to the dinner table. It means I'm going to take you into my heart. It, it's, it's a proximity word. It means we're going to get close. So Paul says, do the exact opposite of what you are doing. You've got those who are the green leafy vegetable folks in church, and then you've got those that are doing the pot roast that was sacrificed to a demon and drinking wine with it, which has its own issues of ungodliness because of the pagan festivities that are associated with wine. And so the best thing to do is sit at separate sides of the church. 
And Paul says, uh-uh, accept. Draw near, take them to your own dinner table, take them into your heart, accept this person, and do not pass judgment on his opinions. The strong must accept the weak. The strong must not pass judgment as though they know more. Okay. Verse 3, the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who can't. We who are strong have no right to judge those who are weak. We who are weak have no right to judge the strong. Why? Because God has accepted us at his table. We're accepted. Okay. Verse 4, this is important. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Do you know what Paul is doing? Paul is pulling an, playing the authority card. If you're an employee and you're under the authority of an employer, that employer has a right to evaluate you. Right? Isn't that called the business world? Your boss has jurisdiction. Someone who is not your boss does not. And they have no right to evaluate you. So Paul says, hey, who are you to judge the servant of another? We're, we literally are servants of God. Don't try to take God's seat. Look at verse 10. Let's drop down to 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Verse 11. It is written... Every knee will bow. Verse 12. Look at this. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. Can you imagine? Each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Okay. The word account simply means there's going to be a walkthrough of the critical records and the evidence. Okay. Think of it as though every click you've ever made on your computer is all being recorded and it will be evaluated by Almighty God. Think of it that way. There will be an accounting. It's what that means. Okay? And in fact, it says that we will all stand before the judgment seat. I know, Guy, you know this from seminary studies that Bema means seat and it literally means to step up and uh, the ruler sits in a chair. That is the judgment seat. That's the language. It's called Bema. There's a step up into a chair of authority, and he is slightly elevated, and he adjudicates and makes a ruling, and normally punishment is associated. We will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And isn't it beautiful <laughs> when you get the gospel that Jesus Christ is going to be standing next to God the Father when he gives that account. Like a defense attorney. And when the verdict is rendered guilty, Jesus Christ is going to say the debt has been paid in full. Does that make sense? Verse 13. Therefore let us not judge one another but rather determine this, not put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. The two words are really kind of fascinating. Obstacle means something you stub your toe on, literally, to make somebody stub their toe. And then, and then the next word, uh, stumbling stone, literally means to create a scandal. To create a scandal. Now, here's just a little insight into some folk. 
that I have been caring for for 30 years, there are some people who have uh, identity formation, how they see themselves, they feel alive, and they feel validated only when there's a scandal. <laughs> Let's just stir it up. There's got to be trouble. And you, you're not, you get what I'm saying, don't you? That someone stirs it up, and it's in that ability to be a fault finder and to become judgmental and, and make a mockery of the people that eat lettuce on them or make a mockery of those that can eat the pot roast to the local temple cult, that you become, you have this fault-finding spirit and an attitude forms within you that you don't feel quite alive or maybe you don't feel so safe unless you can put the spotlight on somebody else. Does this make sense? There are people that delight in causing a scandal, scandalon in Greek, the stumbling block. Create a scandal, stir it up, <clears throat> cause some trouble, because you can get the spotlight off of you onto somebody else. Can I make a, Can I pick at homeschooling for just a bit? <laughs> I R one, and so we can talk about it because we Lisa graduated with a PhD in homeschooling and taught for how many years? Twenty five years. We can say anything we want about homeschoolers, okay? So um, it's almost like that stereotypical homeschool family who homeschools not because it may be an, 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 a superior academic intellectual option, but they're just dead set on being different than everybody else. <laughs> That's why. They don't feel alive unless they're different. Does it make sense? They've got to go against the crowd, and it's, in going, it's deviating from the crowd that they somehow feel, oh, I'm somehow right with God now. And they're completely off track. They're off the rails. That's not why you homeschool. To prove that you're different. And you can just be odd for God. No, that's not how it works. Okay? <laughs> that's not how it works. And, and I, listen, I could pick on any issue. It doesn't matter. I just thought it was a convenient one. Okay? All right. <laughs> Some people thrive on fault-finding and scandals. Verse 15, we are, we are not walking uh, according to the ethic of love. If because of food your brother is hurt, you are long, no longer walking according to love. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it not amazing? Isn't it horrific, the stuff that we destroy relationships over? The stuff we have fights over? Even in marriage? You know, we joke about it, the, the toothpaste, you squeeze from the bottom, the top, you put the lid down, and, and, and then some men ascend to this brilliant intellectual conclusion that the, the lid is hinged. It can go up and down. Or the seat, she can put it down. It's not a big deal, you know, and these guys, why? It goes up and down, not a problem, right? But we fight about the seat and the lid, and... Does toilet paper come off the roll toward the wall, away from the wall? All this silly stuff. But it's, and we are, yes, be fully convinced in your mind what this is about, right? We're there. We're living here, and we can have a fight with our spouse over stuff that is adiaphoric. It's not essential. It doesn't matter. But there's something going on inside the chaos of our own soul, and we choose to make it matter. 
They become fault finders in identifying, creating a scandal so that we can feel alive and pow. And we destroy relationship over the relationship, just the dumbest stuff. It's sad. When that happens, we are not walking in the ethic of love because love does no wrong to a neighbor. I know some people are addicted to being right. But we're missing the point because love is far more important than being right. Verse 23, it's a bit of a, bit of a mystery to us. We, uh, we like, you know, we're, we're Americans and we like black and white computer formulas. One and one is two, pop. I want my relationships to be about as obedient and as efficient as my computer. Let's go. Come on, come on, come on. I want iPhone relationships. Let's go. So when you see verse 23, it's a bit troubling. He who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith. Whatever is not from faith is sin. That's a bit, that's a bit, that, that requires some, some mature stuff inside your soul to live by that ethic. In other words, can I reconcile by faith, Russ, that these behaviors, these attitudes, the things that I say, by the way, the things that I say, do you know Matthew 12, 36 says that every idle word will be judged. Every idle word. Things that you say when the door is closed and nobody hears, every idle word will be judged before God. It takes some stuff to live by faith and ask myself, okay, you know, can I eat this pot roast? <clears throat> can I vote Democrat with a, with a clear conscience? And I'm being serious right now. Can I vote Democrat with a clear conscience by faith? Can I vote Republican with a clear conscience by faith that I am reconciling some moral code that harmonizes with the heart and the values of God? Can I do that? Something as simple as voting Democrat or, or Republican or positions on, um, on wine. And if, if someone uh, is an alcoholic and they battle with alcoholism, uh, they shouldn't be hanging out at liquor stores, certainly, right? Not a good place to hang out if you're an alcoholic. But, you know, what if they're in your home and you start opening up the, the beer or the wine or mixed drinks, a little Coke and Jack, and they're alcoholics, and God has been at work in their lives. We can tear down what God has done. Movies, certain scenes in certain movies, you know, do you, do you kind of, by faith, kind of justify it and just say, hey, you know, it's, it's just our bodies. We're all fearfully and wonderfully made, right? Aren't we all created in the image of God? It's just the human body. It's no big deal. That pot roast was sacrificed to an idol, but so? It's not a big deal. And just kind of, it's just, we're Americans. It's part of our culture. It's okay. You know? Can you do that by faith? Um, whatever is not from faith is sin. Sin is doing something that is outside the will of God. Okay, so there's your slow flyover of Romans 14. And I'm so excited to turn this over to you. <laughs> you ready? 
Prophets, if you're here, come on, let's go, fire it up. Yes. Say that again. Why were you at the beginning? You were defining conscience as not being the Holy Spirit. Just hiding. Okay. Uh, here's how I understand it, and I'm quoting a lot of really smart people. Okay. Uh, you told us what it is, but why do we need to know that to understand? Yep. 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 Okay. Uh, here's how I would explain it, Andrea. I can, I can read a scripture that says, uh, honor father and mother. And when you do so, you're honoring God and he'll give you a blessed life. Honor father and mother. Right. And then I come over here and I go, but I have unbelieving parents who are jerks. And they're mean and they're cruel and they're abusive parents. Right? So now tension is immediately formed. And now my, my sense of a conscience kicks in. How do I honor God in the command to honor your mom and dad? Which is a very moral thing, right? Like right and wrong, it's kind of black and white here. But on the other hand, I have a very abusive family that I live in. Do I pull away or do I submit myself and just take the beating? What do you do? There's tension. And this is where we have the conscience functions, it's a function of our mind where I'm gonna make a moral decision on whether or not to stay with my parents and honor them and take the beatings, or I choose to separate from them because I'm not a doormat and this is unhealthy. Does that make sense? I'm trying to do something tangible. That's a function of your conscience. Now here's where it gets gray. It's awfully hard to settle and be fully convinced in your own mind that I am doing the will of God. That's where it gets tough. And you don't know. So you make a decision and you go with it. If you have a chronic sense of guilt because of that, you need to reevaluate your decision. Does that make sense? Anybody else question, Branson? So how do you distinguish, you feel like you've got peace, how do you distinguish that from just kind of your flesh and desires? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You ready for the answer? Yes. Here's the answer. Corporate conscience. We need each other, don't we, John? <laughs> what if we all had a really open and honest conversation about, let's just grab it for the sake of making the point, PG-13 movies, what if, or, or wine, drinking wine. How about that? And we all had a very open and very honest spiritually minded, morally minded, and scripturally minded, and intellectually responsible conversation about consuming wine. What if we did that here? And consensus formed. That we as the body of Christ, for those who are very, very mature, the gray heads, for those who are young and have no idea what we're talking about right now, okay, and everybody in between, and we concluded <coughs> that it is best to not drink wine or alcohol in any public venue at all, period. And that's our conclusion. Then Andrea Branson, 
you integrate that together and you become a part of the body of Christ and you submit to that. You submit to that ethic. You bend your conscience to that. Does that make sense? And so you have open accountability. That's why at Christ Church, when I hand this thing over to you, we are in live correction mode right then and there. And you're free to say, Chris, whoa, back up, dude. I think you're missing it there, or I've got a question. Please give a clarification. Why are you saying that? What does that mean? Because I'm accountable to you, you're accountable to me. Does that make sense? Now remember, this is a really sacred time. Okay, You just do a survey. How many pastors are willing to hand the mic over to, to, to the average congregation in Little Rock, Arkansas? Do a quick scan. This is an at-risk moment right now. Now, what if everybody here, let's assume, is born again? That the Spirit of, of the Lord Jesus Christ is in you? Colby, the Holy Spirit, is in that in you? And with that comes gifting, right? Let's connect the dots. Then do you realize here this morning we have people here who are merciful? We have people here who are prophetic. They, they can see things that folks can't see. There are people here who are encouraging. And they know how to build up your faith. There are people here who are discerning and they can say, no, that's just a symptom. Here's the real cause. And go right down the line. People ready to serve, ready to teach. People who understand some of the deep things of God and know the work of the Holy Spirit. What if every one of us right now, out of obedience to the gifting within us and the urging of the Holy Spirit, answered the question, how do we live now in view of Romans 14? How could we take ownership of this and what potential behaviors would change if we really owned it? And how would it affect our marriages, our parent-child relationships, our work relationships, our peer relationships? How would we reconcile? I just wrote some things down. Wine, mixed drinks, Coke and Jack, the Democratic agenda, the Republican agenda, PG-13 movies, R-rated movies, social injustice, Abortion, dress code, swimwear. Should a Christian wear a bikini? Not in church. Okay. <laughs> or or should, should a guy wear a Speedo? Oh, good heavens, no. No, no, no. <laughs> what about immigration? What about immigration? Do you want to take the locks off your front door and back door and just say your home is completely open? Anybody can walk in at any time in your house? Okay. What about Netflix? What about adult websites? What about gender identity and political correctness? What about romantic expression? Should you save the first kiss for the wedding altar? Is that like eating green leafy vegetables? <laughs> what about local versus national versus international mission trips? I'm just picking it some. We could go on and on and on again. Get ready. I'm going to pray for you, and I want you to take ownership. Phil? Going off of your example, we were talking about, as a group, we all as a church concluded that, I'm just going with the story here, uh, we abstain from alcohol, right? Okay. Is that responsibility only for within the church? And then when I leave the church individually, then I take upon whatever I feel is right with God? Uh, you get where I'm going with that? Yes, I am. And Philip, that's, that's insightful. And you're actually presupposing some things 
that happened in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10? Okay. And to jump ahead, the answer is yes. If you are fully convinced in your conscience, right, your brain, and you've reconciled it with Scripture, with the work of God, the Holy Spirit, and your social responsibilities, if you believe you can have a glass of wine at home, privately, behind a closed door, then that's your business. But don't brag about it. And don't talk about it in church either. And if you had a pot rose sacrificed to Zeus, keep it to yourself. All right. I want to pray. And then I want you to be obedient to the Holy Spirit. Abba, Father, thank you for each person that's here. And I pray right now that you would make these next moments so anointed with the work of your Spirit that we would learn we have a corporate conscience and that we should be sensitive to one another and speak your words right now. Let no foolishness be spoken. Close the mouths of the fools. Open the mouths of the wise. In Jesus' name, amen. How do we live? Romans 14. Yes. What I view largely in the United States, we have uh, a Christian humanism that dominates. It's about education, what you learn. It's all about the head and the the letters you have after your name. And that we've come to the place where we default so heavily on the intellect. What is an answer to the problem? Thank you, Guy. What is an answer to the problem that we can default too heavily to the intellect or default too heavily to emotions? What's the answer? What did you say, Jet? Corporate. Corporate, corporate conscience. What else? Jesus. Certainly his character. That's really good because I'm no kidding. It might sound cheesy. What would Jesus do? But I'm really serious. Wow, didn't that be a great thing to do? Start to repeat his words and, and replicate his actions? Wow, that'd be good. I'm looking for one more thing. Faith, certainly. One more thing. What about scripture? There you go. Scripture. Scripture. But but he said he's going to send it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, not the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. So, like, if there was no Bible for a couple hundred years that was codified. Right, right, right. 120 people turned the world upside down without having a Bible covered in there. Yeah. True, but let's add to it what did they have? And what else? The law and they had the spirit. And the words of Jesus. They were all memorized and they were all being repeated. So they did have scripture, particularly in the four gospels. Four best friends a man's gonna ever have. He was sending the spirit in order that the spirit would lead us in all truth. Yes. And then the yes. spirit would remind us of everything. Yes. Did. John sixteen, first John. Absolutely. So how dependent are are we on all these things? 
utterly and completely dependent. Absolutely. You guys own it. Deal with it. John. So, all of these things are emotions, our convictions, our mind and intellect. I think we should say that they are all gifts from God. Yes. We are His children. Um, these are things that He gave us by no mistake. It's not like our mind is ours or our spirit or our emotion is ours and then there's this place for Holy Spirit that's other than. These are just like the channels that he operates through. Um, so I think that we have to learn to submit to the Holy Spirit and all of our mind, all of our emotion, all of our conviction belongs to him and then we are like transformed to where his thoughts become our thoughts. His mind consumes our mind, and, and we are one with Christ. So, we're in a love relationship with Him, you know, and we can't over here get it right intellectually, and we can't over here get it right emotionally. Um, it's a life of submission to Him. That's the only time I've ever gotten it right is when I'm fully submitted to Him, and then all of me belongs to Him. I'm not my own. You know? Absolutely. So I think that we err on all kinds of sides, but like you can't get too much true Holy Spirit. It will keep you right in the vein of truth. Like, yes. And your motive will be right if you if you surrendered your heart and your mind to Him. Um, mm -hmm. We don't have to worry that, oh my gosh, what if I'm getting over here in sin? What if I'm not living inspired? Because the Holy Spirit is sharp and will keep you where you ought to be. Mm. That's good, John. So, John, we don't live for ourselves. We don't die for ourselves. Whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. By the way, um, it's Holy Spirit, not emotional spirit. Mm. Right? Anything that moves you to holiness is in the will of God. First Peter 1.16, it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Keep going. You're the body of Christ, Prince. I was just going to say, like, we're talking about emotions and intellect and everything. And you were saying earlier, man, if your foot's hurting, you're going to feel it. Even yes. if you can. Yes, yes, you know, yes. It's right. like, we need that intellect. We need your emotion. We need, you know, the gut instinct. We need the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. It's all function. Mm -hmm. I mean, Jeff, you know better than most. It's like, you need your neurons and everything else firing up here make these toes wiggle, you know, you don't feel it in here when this wiggles, but it's like, you need that for it to function, yeah. you know, yeah. just a little cell in the body. That's good, Branson. By the way, reminder, all the pronouns are plural, okay, that's why it's so important you get this as a corporate conscience, okay, we do this together, if you have an inclination toward the emotions, that's fine, that's good. Pursue it, pursue holiness out of it. But remember, you're only one part of the greater part. And it's all held in tension. All of this is in tension. John, how many tools? If you've got one toolbox and you've got your sweet tools in it, how many are in there? Seventy-five. Okay. And you know how to use each one at the right time, don't you? When you need a screwdriver, you don't get a hammer. 
Well, unless you're really angry, then you might get that. But, you know. The point is, there's a time to reach into the toolbox and grab intellect. There's a time to grab emotion. There's a time to grab all the stuff that God gave us. But it's corporate. It's not you by yourself. It's corporate. We do this thing together. Someone else, why does this matter? Jet. Yes. Of morality. You know, I mean, obviously we offer grace and, you know, we've been commanded by these scriptures to do the thing that is best for them as part of the corporate conscience, but there are people who would abuse that in a controlling yes. way. Yes. How do we incorporate that person into the body? Yes. Right? I, are you reading my notes? <laughs> <laughs> I call it hijacking, moral hijacking. By the way, pop quiz, you ready? This whole teaching in Romans 14, who is it predominantly directed to? The majority of the of the content is directed to who? The strong or the weak? The strong. And who are the ones that are supposed to bend and sacrifice and serve? The strong bend and come down to help honor and serve the weak. He's not asking the weak to come up and rise to the level of the strong. He's asking the strong to drop to the level of the weak. That's the social dynamic here. On the honor-shame scale... He's saying to the high-status people, you need to come down and you need to be sensitive to the needs of the low-status people, is what he's saying. But, you're right, Jet. There are some that want to morally hijack the church. They do. Again, some people thrive on scandal and fault-finding, and in that, they try to morally hijack things, which is very unhealthy. And that's where, again, it's the collective conscience through the work of the Holy Spirit that we go, that is not the spirit of love, that is not the spirit of grace. It's not walking in grace, in balance of truth, grace and truth held in tension. We've got to have both. So yeah, there's folks that tend to hijack. Just like there's other folks who tend to say, well, I don't care, and they become detached and, and, and um, what's the word, indifferent. They become indifferent and go the opposite direction. So. Someone else. Or a chandelier for the church. It just doesn't even make sense to us. Yeah, or inside the church building. Yeah. Uh, which for a lot of them is, is, is an odd thing to even have a building set up for it. And yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. like, you know, going back to history, uh, before the Reformation, the corporate conscience was not something that should be followed. Yeah. And it took a few people who were willing to say something about sure. it. So, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's where you get into false teachers and, and, and very dysfunctional leaders in a church. Yeah. 
And you know what? So much of this stuff is, is settled up when you really understand Scripture. If we really dig into Scripture and know truth, and we walk in the Spirit and, we, and, and the fruit of the Spirit, you can figure this stuff out. So the bottom line is, I, I, I feel your pain, and I'm there too. Okay. But this is what Paul said. This is corporate. It's the dyadic body of Christ, and we can't get away from that. That's like saying, do people misuse money? Money and fraud in the, in the secular world? Yeah. So does that mean churches should get rid of money? Well, no. No. So there is a corporate conscience. It is, God. But it's in its, can I say it's in its pure form? Because do you think the Roman church, I mean, can you go back any earlier than that? And they've got, they've got their issues. The Corinthian church, look at them. You know, so pick your time in history. You can't just go back to the reverend. Let's do it all. I mean, it's all messed up. <laughs> but yet we're still responsible. So it's kind of like marriage. Just because you get upset with your wife or your husband, does that mean it's, divorce is the only answer? Boom. No. That is a corporate conscience between a man and a woman. So, so yeah, you're right, Guy. Uh, there's, yeah, the, the corporate branded church. Uh, I'm interested in I don't. But I trust you. I trust you. I don't, please correct me if I'm wrong, but when I hear corporate conscience of the body of Christ, and I look back at history, you said half a dozen people to 12 people. Very small. If you think about the people that you surround yourself with, if you know the Lord, and you're with the body of believers, and you're all trying, yes. you're all serving, yes. I think you can trust them. Yes, absolutely. We know the fruit of the Spirit when we see it. We know who's serious with Scripture and being responsible with Scripture and those who are not. We know it. We know touchy-feely church when we see it. We know it. We're not done. I'd just like to say a couple words about how this Scripture has affected my life. I, I started out um, in a lot of fear. My parents fought all the time. And I was always afraid they'd divorce. And that was basically the energy that drove my life was fear. And I realized, reading this and reading other scriptures about this, that when you make decisions based on fear, like the Pharisees and all the racial purity and all that stuff, uh, you are in sin. There is no fear in the kingdom. There is no fear in the kingdom. And, and when you fear, that is fear, rather other than the fear of God, of course. If you fear um, things that um, don't really matter, the Audio for it, the non-essential, sure. Then, then you're in sin because faith is the opposite of fear. And, and God is always encouraging you, courage, giving you courage, mm -hmm. which is the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. Faith is, is the opposite of that. Anyway, fear is the opposite saying, of faith. I'm saying yeah. reading yeah. these scriptures changed my life as far as what the energy that drove my life was not fear. At least wow. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Russ. So let's, let's wrap it up with this right here. So this is Paul's, his corrective. This is what we do. So then we pursue as though we were athletes chasing down something extremely important. We pursue the things which make for peace in the building up of one another. Someone has got to be a part of the answer. And not continuing to perpetuate the problem. Someone's got to be part of the answer. And Paul is advocating that we take on a corporate responsibility and we maintain a corporate conscience, principles of conscience, 
to be a part of the answer and pursue the things which make for peace, drawing, inviting to the dinner table, inviting into your heart, and loving someone. Thank you all. I hope it stirred you up. I hope so. <laughs> the word of God is like a sharp sword, Carl, isn't it? It's two-edged. And it can separate right down to the very motives of a man or a woman's heart. Sharp, sharp sword. So, uh, isn't it beautiful that John writes in, in, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, beautiful healing words. He says, and by the way, this has everything to do with the judgment seat of God. My little children, I am writing these things to you that so you may not sin. Whatever is not of faith is sin. If anyone sins, we have a defense attorney, an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the full payment for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you. Thank you for the hard work this morning of understanding your word, of understanding the authority and the command to pursue love and peace because love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore it fulfills the law. But I pray that we as a, a collective group of broken and scarred people will be sensitive to those who think they can only eat leafy vegetables and those who are struggling with the, what appears to be irresponsibility and, and the lax, lackadaisical approach to morality of other people, these, these folks that are strong, that they be sensitive to them too and that there be no judgment in either direction but only acceptance over the things that really are not essential. And that we commit passionately to loving you, loving each other, and finding our true identity in grace and not in law. Thank you for the great sanity of faith and hope and love and how you change us. And thank you for how you use this chapter to change Russ's life and what you're doing in him. Father, thank you so much. But I love you in Jesus' name, amen.